My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel the depth of anguish and sorrow in those words? Do you feel the pain and the agony? If you're a Christian, then those words are probably familiar to you. You know that those are the words of Jesus as he died on the cross, as he felt excruciating pain in his body, humiliation before people, and the wrath of God being poured out for the sins of his people. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But did you know that when Jesus said these words, he was quoting Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. Michael Morales writes, the Psalms are songs, unique, the Psalms as songs uniquely convey the inward depths of the soul, and especially Christ's soul. Not only do the Psalms help shape our response to God and the trials and joys of life, then, but they also reveal to us something of the inner life of Jesus Christ, glimpses, glimpses we do not have through the Gospels alone. We are beginning a sermon series in the book of Psalms, and I can hardly think of a better motivation to study the Psalms than to know Christ personally and intimately. During his ministry on earth, Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures frequently. He delighted in the scripture, he meditated on the scripture, and he taught the scripture. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, we read about a conversation Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection. Luke writes, then he said to them, these are the, my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When we study the Old Testament scriptures, including the Psalms, we should be thinking about Jesus. Our series will last 21 weeks, covering 21 Psalms that cover a variety of subgenres, including wisdom, royal, lament, thanksgiving, and praise. We've entitled the series, Into His Presence. Phrase taken from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3, which says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The emphasis in Psalms is coming into the presence of the Lord, particularly coming into his presence as a congregation of worshipers. When we come into his presence as a congregation of wor worshipers, we come to sing joyful noises, make a joyful noise and sing songs of praise to him, for he is our rock of salvation. We are to come into his presence with grateful hearts, knowing who he is and what he has done for us. We are to recognize that he is a great God and worshiping, worship him for being a great king above all gods. 
Sometimes we come into his presence broken, needy, and desperate. In all these moments, in all these circumstances, the Psalms provide a tremendous resource for us to draw near to God. We all experience a wide range of emotions as we experience the ups and downs of living in a fallen world, which is reflected in the prayers and songs of this wonderful book. The Psalms not only reflect a wide range of human emotions, but are meant to shape our emotions, affections, and attitudes as we humble ourselves in the presence of the one true living God. The book of Psalms is a wonderful songbook meant to be used by God's people, primarily in the context of the worshiping community. So we pray that the Lord will use this series to help us come into his presence with grateful hearts to worship his great name and to have our affections and our attitudes and our emotions shaped by his word. We pray that the Lord will use this series to help us draw near to and grow closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our passage today is Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, as the gateway to the Psalms, looks to separate those who belong in the congregation of true worshipers and those who do not. In the six verses that make up this Psalm, we see a stark contrast. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 1, and I encourage you to follow along as I read. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." Psalm 1 is commonly referred to as a wisdom psalm, and if you are familiar with the book of Proverbs, you will see some similarities and parallels in the book of Proverbs with what we read here in Psalm chapter 1. In our passage, we see two lifestyles, two types of fruit, and two outcomes. Again, we see two lifestyles, two types of fruit, and two outcomes. First, we see two lifestyles. The way of the righteous is contrasted with the way of the wicked. The psalm begins, blessed is the man. Of course, using a male example does not exclude women from blessedness. It is a common in wisdom literature for authors to use a specific concrete example for others to admire and imitate. The blessed man represents the way of the righteous, the way of the godly person. And the first word should get our attention Blessed. What does that mean? 
while it refers to happiness and a joyful state of mind. But it has a deeper sense than light and momentary happiness and speaks more to a kind of whole life flourishing. Doesn't that sound good? Don't you want your life to be characterized in this way? Don't you want to experience whole life flourishing? What kind of person experience this blessedness? Who is the blessed man? Well, the one who is blessed is characterized both by what he does not do and what he does do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. The wicked, the sinner, and the scoffers describe those who are opposed to God in their attitudes and behaviors and ultimately represent the way of the world. Derek Kidner writes that these verses describe conformity to this world at three different levels. Accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes. I think there may be some among us who are tempted to go the way of the world in obvious ways. Maybe you are tempted to go the way of the world, the way of the wicked, because sin is appealing to you and you don't have a strong interest in the things of God. If that is you today, I hope that you will take heed to what we read here in Psalm chapter 1 and reconsider your ways and reconsider the lightness by which you consider the things of God. But I also think that some of us may be drifting toward the way of the world slowly, subtly, almost imperceptibly. Maybe there are small ways that you are being influenced. Small things, small areas of compromise that are slowly, gradually moving you in the wrong way. Friends, one of the things we need to be aware of is that when it comes to the ways of the world, the current is strong. Have you ever been in a river where you felt the current pulling you quickly, rapidly along? Well, I think living in the world, we have to be aware of this current, the current that is strong, but oftentimes we're not even aware of. It's just the air we breathe. Well, I think this psalm compels us to take inventory and do some self-assessment. We need to ask hard questions to determine if we are being carried along without realizing it. Who is influencing you? What is shaping your thinking, attitudes, and behaviors? How do you determine what behavior is acceptable? What is important to you? What are you seeking? How do you make decisions? For most of us, when we read or hear about the way of the wicked, we know that we don't want any part of that. But it's possible we are being shaped more by the world than we realize. And we need to be very careful regarding the advice we listen to, the behaviors we find acceptable, 
and the attitudes we adopt. The one who is blessed does not go along with the way of the world and is not influenced by those who oppose God. The one who is blessed does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But on the positive side, what does he do? He does two things, both centered on the law of the Lord. Before we unpack the two things, we need to understand what the law of the Lord refers to. When we hear the phrase, the law of the Lord, our minds might go immediately to the Ten Commandments or the commandments we read in the book of Leviticus. We might go to those specific commandments and those specific laws. And while the law of the Lord certainly includes those things, the law, which comes from the Hebrew word Torah, is broader than that. James Hamilton writes, Torah includes much more than the various biblical rules and regulations that the English translation law might suggest. The Hebrew term connotes the history of God's acts to deliver his people and all the instructions that he has given in his word. Torah may have originally referred to the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, but as the canon of scripture grew, additional books came to be included in the concept of the Torah, of the law. For example, in John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus quoted Psalm 82.6 and said, is it not written in your law? So when we hear the law of the Lord, we should not only think about the specific commands, such as the Ten Commandments, but we should recognize it's referring to God's wonderful, glorious revelation of himself and his acts in history and his will and his relationship to his people. We should think about God's glorious act of creation whereby he spoke things into existence. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, the trees, the grass, his beauty. Where he spoke man into existence, both male and female, he created them. His good, beautiful design. We should think about his beautiful, wonderful, glorious place where he placed man, Adam and Eve. This beautiful, wonderful, glorious garden where they got to enjoy his presence. We should think about his judgment of sin when they disobeyed him. We should think about his judgment and salvation with the flood and Noah and his family, his as wonderful and powerful works on display. We should think about the covenant that he made with Abraham and establishing him and making these wonderful promises that through his lineage, the whole, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. We should think about God's work in preserving Joseph in the land of Egypt and how through these trials and hardships and pain and agony, God was working his sovereign good plan to save his people. We should think about the exodus when God's people cried out in pain and God saw their pain. He saw their oppression and he responded to them with compassion and with mercy. He heard their pleas and he came and acted on their behalf, demonstrating himself to be strong, to be mighty, to be powerful. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he rendered judgment on those who oppressed his people and he delivered them and redeemed them out of slavery bringing them to the, the Mount, Mount Sinai and entering into a covenant with them, whereby he said, you will be my people and I will be your God, setting his love on them 
We should think of the way that he provided for them, the sacrificial system so that they could worship him and so that they could enjoy his presence in their midst. We should think about the way that he led them into the promised land and gave them a good land. We should think about the fact that God desires to dwell with his people as his people live under his loving rule, as they are meant to obey his commands and enjoy his blessing. Oh, we should think about all these wonderful things. Meditating on the law of the Lord involves thinking on these things. So with that in mind, we return to the two things the blessed man does regarding God's law. He delights in it and meditates on it. First, what does it mean to delight? Well, let me ask you this. What are you looking forward to? Is there anything you're looking forward to later today? Get on with the sermon. Let's keep it moving. Got things to do. Anything you're looking forward to later today? Anything you're looking forward to later this week? This summer? Is there something you're looking forward to? Maybe end of the year, maybe next year. Maybe you have something you're planned that you are looking forward to. And when you have free time, you think about it. What we look forward to, what we are excited about, what we plan for, invest time in, and spend money on, tend to be the things we delight in. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. He or she is excited to read God's word, looks forward to opening it up, and gladly invests time and energy to know God through his word. In Psalm 119, verse 72, the psalmist writes, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, that is a picture of delighting in the law of the Lord. When God's word is more precious to you than the riches of this world, you are delighting in it. We are called to delight in his word, rightly prizing it and treasuring it, recognizing the value that is there. We recognize the value that is there. We recognize the beauty, the value, the goodness that is in his word. Do you delight yourself in the law of the Lord? Brothers and sisters, we need the Lord to open our eyes to see the goodness and richness of his word. My concern is that we have a rich feast before us, but we're addicted to snacking on Lay's potato chips. Oh, we have this rich, beautiful, glorious feast in God's word, but we can't stop snacking on the Lay's potato chips of social media. Oh, we got this rich feast before us, but we can't stop snacking on the the Lay's potato chips of entertainment media and Netflix. We have this rich feast before us, but we can't stop snacking on the Lay's potato chips of sports and, and news media and all these other distractions that fill our, our, our minds and our, and our lives. We're settling 
for Lay's potato chips when we have a rich feast before us in God's word. We need to develop an appetite for God's word. If you eat junk food continually, you have an appetite for junk food. You start to make the change to healthy food. And at first you're like, I don't enjoy healthy food. <laughs> Why do people think so highly of a plant-based diet? But when you begin to eat healthy food, you begin to develop an appetite and appreciation for healthy food. And you begin to realize the benefits of how you feel. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to develop a, an appetite for God's word. The only way you develop that appetite, that desire, that hunger, the only way that you will delight in God's word is by taking steps of faith to feast upon God's word. I want to encourage you. If you don't delight in God's word, pray. Pray for God's help. He is merciful and gracious to us. And he wants to see that desire grow in you. Pray that he will give you a hunger, a desire for his word, so that you will delight in it, so that you will look forward to opening it up, so that you will recognize and appreciate it for the rich treasure that it is. I want to encourage you to take steps of faith reading the Bible. For many people, a Bible reading plan is particularly helpful. Having a plan to systematically read through the Bible on a daily basis. And there are many out there, many that we've shared before, many that we will continue to share with you. Even if it's a plan whereby you read one chapter a day, if you can delight in reading one chapter every day, it will do good for your soul. Be intentional. Have a plan. Take steps of faith. Commit to that. Be disciplined. And as you take those steps of faith, and as you pray for the Lord to help you delight in his word, you will begin to reap the rewards of that. Pray and take steps of faith. The more consistently you prayerfully seek God in his word, the more you will delight in it. And as your delight in the word increases, you will enjoy God. The blessed man also meditates on the word. Meditating on the word involves thinking and reflecting on the word while you read it and even after you're done reading it. How many times have you read the word, closed it, and quickly forgotten what you just read? We want to meditate on God's word so that as we're reading it, we're giving our attention to it. We're trying hard to fight off those wandering, distractive thoughts, which we all have. We all struggle with being distracted when we read God's word. Our minds tend to wander. And so we want to prayerfully seek to meditate on his word, to give our attention to it as we read it, and then think about it even after we're done reading it. We want the word of God to reverberate in our hearts and minds as we consider its meaning think about the implications, and prayerfully seek to apply it to our lives. A good way of doing this is to memorize Scripture, maybe taking a verse or two and just speaking to, to memorize it and spend a little bit of time on that every day. Maybe you memorize a verse about God's love, like in Romans 8.39, which says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How good would it be for you to remind yourself of that? To have that verse memorized and to remind yourself that there is nothing 
that will separate you from the love of God. The best thing you have is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from it. No one can take it from you. It would be good for your soul to meditate on that. Or maybe when you're going through a hard time, maybe when you are experiencing a trial, you meditate on James 1, 2 through 4, which says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What a good reminder. What a good thing to have stored in your heart when you're facing a trial, to be able to call to your mind. I'm going through a hard time. This is hard. It doesn't feel pleasant. It feels painful. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Maybe you need to memorize a verse on temptation to help you resist temptation when it comes. Maybe you will do well to, to memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But, when the temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How helpful for would, would it be for you to have that memorized so that when you face temptation, you can recall that to your mind. Take time to meditate on God's word as you read, as you reflect, as you memorize. How do we avoid conformity to this world and accepting its advice and being party to its ways and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes? We delight in and meditate on the law of the Lord. Next, we see two types of fruit. The psalmist provides a beautiful picture of what the blessed man is like. He is like a tree planted in fertile, well-watered soil. The tree is healthy and thrives. When the time is right, it produces fruit. Its leaf does not grow old and wither. Isn't that a wonderful image, a beautiful picture? Consider this, a healthy, well-watered, fruit-producing tree benefits others. The blessed man who walks the righteous path is a blessing to others. On the other hand, the wicked are not like this at all. Rather, they are like chaff that the wind quickly and easily blows away. Their lives are not meaningful or helpful. They offer no value to others. They don't produce anything lasting. They quickly fade away and, or, and are forgotten. On the one hand, we have a beautiful, healthy, long-lasting, fruit-producing tree that benefits others. And on the other hand, we have chaff, which is worthless, which is quickly blown away, providing no material benefit to anyone. And finally, we see two outcomes. Where do these two roads lead? How is it going to work out in the end for the wicked? How about for the righteous? The outcome of the wicked is described first. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, and they will not ultimately and finally be included in the congregation of the righteous. 
whatever the wicked gain through their sinful ways, will be short-lived as a day of reckoning will come. Whatever joy, whatever power, whatever wealth and possessions are attained or accumulated will fade quickly. No one will be able to escape God's judgment and the wicked will not be able to stand when that day comes. Their end will be swift and decisive. If you reject God's law, ignore God's law, or think lightly of God's law, you do so to your own peril. Everyone will have to give an account to the Lord, including you. Things will not end well for the wicked, but on the other hand, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And of course, this speaks to more than an awareness. God's aware of everybody. He's aware of everybody's ways. But when it says he knows the way of the righteous, it's speaking to a personal, intimate knowledge, an affection, an approval, an acceptance of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. There is nothing better than knowing God in an intimate and personal way whereby we receive his love, his approval, and his acceptance. To know God and be known by God in this way is good. Two ways. Two ways are presented to us in Psalm 1. Which path will you take? I think most of us would agree. We want to walk the way of the righteous. We want to walk in that path, in the way of the one who is blessed. I also think that most of us are aware that at minimum, at times, we have wandered from that path. As a matter of fact, in Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, we read, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there, there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Well, that is some bad news. <laughs> Two paths. God's word has something to say. Which path we have gone down? We have all fallen short. We have all sinned against the Lord. We have all failed to walk the perfect, righteous path. That is a problem in light of the warnings regarding God's judgment. Who has perfectly walked this righteous path? Well, there is only one. Jesus is the perfect example of the blessed man of Psalm 1. Jesus loved sinners. He ate with sinners. He ministered to sinners. But he never gave in to sin. They didn't influence him. He influenced them. They didn't change the trajectory of his life. He changed the trajectory of their lives. He delighted in and meditated on God's law. He knew the word. He delighted in the word. He quoted the word. He taught the word. 
Oh, and just encourage you to read through the Gospels to look at how many times Jesus refers to the Old Testament scriptures. They were always on his heart and mind, quick on his fingertips. He had them right there. And his life was a blessing to those around him. Those around him received love, kindness, encouragement. He brought healing. He provided food. He revealed the kingdom of God. His life was fruitful, and he was a blessing. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, and that is good news for us. Jesus resisted temptation and lived a life without sin. The good news of the gospel is that even though we have sinned and rebelled against God, who is our creator, who is our maker, even though we've rebelled against him and deserve the judgment described here in Psalm 1, God has provided a way for us to be saved and forgiven of our sins in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world as the Savior of the world. Unlike us, Jesus lived a life without sin. He perfectly obeyed God's law and lived a righteous life and therefore was able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice in our place to pay the penalty for our sins at the cross. Jesus went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice to take the punishment for our sins. Not only did he experience excruciating physical pain, not only did he experience humiliation, he also experienced the wrath of God poured out upon him for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering death. God demonstrating that he accepted Christ's sacrifice for our sins as payment for the debt that we owed. And now, Everyone who believes in Christ receives the forgiveness of sins and the gift of Christ's righteousness. By faith, we receive credit for Christ's righteousness. If you have repented of your sins and believed in Christ, then the Lord looks at you and sees the righteousness of of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Praise God. In Jesus Christ, we receive the righteousness of God. And for those of us who are in Christ, we have received his righteousness, and we have also received God's power to live a righteous life like the one characterized by the blessed man of Psalm 1. In 2 Peter 1.3, we, re we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
In summary, there are two paths, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. We have all failed to walk the way of the righteous. We have all fallen short. But God in his mercy has provided Jesus Christ, the Son of God as the Savior of the world, who perfectly walked the righteous path for us and died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And now, when we repent of our sins and believe in him, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of his righteousness. And we also receive the power, God's power, at work in us to pursue the righteous path that we read about in Psalm chapter one. If you are not a Christian, I urge you today to believe in Christ and be saved. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ. Be saved. For those of us who belong to Christ, we joyfully assemble here and now as the congregation of the righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. We also know that our assembly here points to the future heavenly assembly. We know that when we look to the Psalm chapter 1, the end of Psalm chapter 1, where it says the sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, that there is a day where that congregation, that assembly, will take place in the heavenly places. We read about this in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. We read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise God. We look forward to the day when we will be in the congregation of the righteous, in the heavenly places, worshiping him for all of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is precious. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rightly value your word, to delight in your word and to meditate on your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and intimacy with you. We pray that you'd help us to walk in your ways. We thank you for the righteousness that we receive in Jesus Christ because we know that we have no righteousness apart from Christ. We pray, Lord, that we will be the people who come into your presence with thanksgiving, with gratitude for who you are, for what you've done, worshiping your name, looking forward to the day when we will be in the congregation of the righteous, in the heavenly places, worshiping you for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are going to continue our time of worship together. And if you have been here for the last month, you know that we have not taken the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings for the last month. And we pause the Lord's Supper to draw attention to it, to help us think about it and rightly partake of it. And part of the reason for this is simply the weight that Scripture puts on rightly taking the Lord's Supper. What do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
gave instructions to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper. And his instructions include weighty warnings, things that we need to think about and take to heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, these are weighty words, words to be taken to heart by everyone who would gather. And with the weight of these words in mind, the elders want to be ensure, ensure that we give careful attention and instruction to the Lord's Supper. If the instruction we are providing represents a change in how you think about or even participate in the Lord's Supper, there is no shame in that. And you don't need to be embarrassed. If we have brought up things that you haven't given much thought to, that's okay. We simply ask that you take time to consider them now. In light of the teaching and weighty warnings on the subject, we as an elder team feel a burden regarding how the congregation partakes in the Lord's Supper. And we believe we are accountable to the Lord to give careful instructions on the Lord's Supper. Ultimately, everyone who gathers is accountable to the Lord regarding how you receive the instructions and participate in the Lord's Supper. We're not going to do what Charles Spurgeon did in the 19th century, whereby he required people to present a ticket before taking the Lord's Supper. If you don't know Charles Spurgeon, he was an English Baptist preacher in the 19th century. He had a very large church, and he required members of his church or visiting members of other church to provide a ticket for Lord's Supper. We're not doing that. We're not requiring proof. We are simply saying that we are accountable to give instructions, and we believe that you are accountable to receive the instructions and participate in the Lord's Supper rightly. So first, the Lord's Supper or communion is only for Christians. It is only for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, having received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And ordinarily, it is for baptized believers who have joined themselves to a local church. This is the practice of the church in the New Testament. The Christians who took the Lord's Supper were baptized believers who were committed and accountable to a local congregation of fellow believers in the way Jesus commanded. The love, commitment, unity, and accountability between Christians within a local congregation, which we see in the New Testament, is what we refer to as membership. And we understand that some churches do not teach or practice membership. Some churches have not practiced membership biblically. And some Christians have had bad experiences with membership. And because of this, some Christians are understandably resistant to the idea of church membership. If that is you, we would love for you to participate in our Road 101 membership class beginning on April 30th, where you can learn more about our church, what we believe, and what the Bible teaches about what we call membership. Taking the class doesn't commit you to anything, 
but hopefully will be helpful to you in seeing what the Bible teaches and how we practice it. For now, I'll say that the New Testament uses two metaphors that describe Christians as members. In Ephesians 2.19, we are referred to as members of the household of God. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we are referred to as members of Christ's body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, we read, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And what we see in these verses and others is that the metaphors describing us as members of the household of God and members of the body of Christ are meant to be applied by Christians in concrete ways with other believers in the context of a local church. And one of the reasons we make the connection between a formal commitment to a local church and the Lord's Supper is because the Lord's Supper is not a private act of worship. It is not a private, individual act of worship. Rather, we are to take the Lord's Supper when we come together to demonstrate our unity in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, we read, "'Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body.'" for we all partake of the one bread. In other words, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are demonstrating our unity with other believers. And the unity we demonstrate through the Lord's Supper is meant to reflect the unity we are committed to pursuing throughout the week. And again, 1 Corinthians 11, 29-32 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. This verse speaks to the necessity of being mindful of how one relates to the rest of the body when taking the Lord's Supper. A mindful regard that goes beyond what we do here on Sundays. For this reason, we believe that the Lord's Supper is for members of this church, or if you are a visiting member of another church, or if you desire to become a member here, but have not had the opportunity to complete the membership process. We believe that is who the Lord's Supper is for. I know this may not answer all of your questions, and if you have any specific question, please come and talk to any of the elders. And if you are hearing this and thinking, maybe I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because I need to think through some of these things, that's okay. I want to be very clear. We expect that there will be some who gather who do not take the Lord's Supper. If that is you, we are glad you are here, and you are welcome here. We do not expect that everyone who gathers will take the Lord's Supper, and that's not a bad thing. Our heart is not at all to embarrass anyone, but to give these instructions because of the weight that Scripture places on rightly participating in the Lord's Supper. We have a document in the back that if you've not had a chance to read, you can pick it up where we lay out some of these things in more detail. So you can take one of those if you have not had a chance to read it, and you can pick it up and read through that. We also have this list of one another commands, which are commands given to Christians, which describe how we as members of the church are to relate to one another. So I'd encourage you, take one of these. If you have not taken one of those, take a look at that. If you want to look through our document detailing more um, of what we believe about the Lord's Supper, I'd encourage you to uh, take that as well. So we are going to take the Lord's Supper a little differently than we have in the past. During the first song, 
we are going to ask those partaking to come to the tables and get the elements and then hold on to them so that we can take them together after the first song. So if you are coming to the table, uh, come right as soon as the, the first song begins. You can come right away to the tables and grab the elements and then just hold on to them and just um, sing while we wait to take it together. If you're in the back third of the room, there are uh, communion elements on the back counter. So if you're sitting by the, that door or behind that side door, you can feel free to go down the outer aisle to grab the elements on the uh, back counter and return to your seat uh, through the center aisle. If you're coming towards the front, uh, front uh, two-thirds or so, you can walk down the outer aisles, grab the elements from the table, and return to your seat through the center aisle as well. And so after the first song is done and we've had the opportunity to grab those elements, we'll invite you to sit down before we take the elements together. And it is a good thing to look around. Again, as we say, this is not a private act of worship. It's not a private act of devotion. It's meant to be done looking around at those with whom we are partaking. So with that, let's stand and let's continue to worship the Lord together. The night before he died, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's take the Lord's Supper, uh, Lord's Supper together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's partake together. Amen. Let's continue to sing God's praises.